Good day, good evening, and good streaming. I am Jello Biafra, and this is Renegade Roundtable. Once upon a time, in one of my many trips to used record stores, where I rarely go looking for anything specific, I just find what I find. I've always been a big fan of magic accidents over the years, dating clear back to... Uh, Oh, when I found traded tape and records in high school and just grabbed all kinds of weird things out of the 50 cent bin of many different kinds of music that were life changing. Well, one fine day, I'm flipping through some punk rock or other seven inches and I find an interesting looking one with interesting looking black, white, purple, orange, Halloween art called Mayhem on the High Seas by a band called Tsunami Bomb. Oh, well, this is kind of cool. I wonder what this is. I'll take it home. Then I put it on. Wow, this is not your average little crusty punk thing at all, is it? This is more gothy, maybe psyche, women singing and playing in the band. This is something else. This is really good. Oh, my God, they're local. They're from up in Sonoma County. Maybe they need a label. But then I find out within a week or two, oh, I guess they don't need a label. They are headlining Slims in a couple of weeks. So uh, off and running. Never got to see the bad back then. But then uh, fast forward a few more years and who winds up? Yes, now it's time for the incest department, the uh, nepotism department, working first as a publicist and then after a stint at a sports website, coming back to do a very fine, outstanding job as general manager web designer who did one hell of a job getting us a much more kick-ass website and a much more kick-ass customer base as a result of it, knowing how to get people to get things, so to speak. And then, lo and behold, back comes Tsunami Bomb, as well as another new band of his called Loud Graves, as well as his Monster Candy podcast about horror and Monster Legion clothing design, which I didn't hear about till earlier today. Here we are. Welcome to the one and only Dominic Davy. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That is a great introduction. Of course. Would I do you wrong? Would I do anybody <laughs> wrong? I am the gold standard of introductions. Well, maybe, at least today. Anyway, okay, let's go even further back than Mayhem on the High Seas. What created you? <laughs> Well, my parents luckily uh, came to a, a decent agreement, and uh, apparently I was a happy accident. So that that helped get me started. Um, no, I, uh, I uh, started out um, hanging around when I was a kid. Like, I was born around Petaluma, but we moved to the East Bay for a number of years. And then around when I was about in sixth grade, my parents took me back up there. And the, they saw, driving by, they saw the Phoenix Theater uh, in Petaluma, which is a, uh, right. a very old opera house theater that's been, vaudeville theater that's been there for hundreds of years. And they just kicked, they saw a bunch of kids hanging out in front and they're like, hey, there's kids there. And then literally kicked me out of the car <laughs> and drove away. And so I had to come hang out at this place, which uh, was run by a guy by the name of Tom Gaffey, who still runs it to this day. And he was providing an open space for the kids of the town to not only like skateboard inside the theater and hang out and play video games, but also the stage. You could put on a play, you could get a bunch, you could start a band, you could practice there, you could learn how 
to play there. You could try things out and um, even even skate on ramps inside mm-hmm. the theater. For many years, there was no skate uh, park in the town, so all the skaters oh. would skate there. Uh, now there's a skate park, but they still skate there. So, but they uh, he thanks to him and the Phoenix Theater, I was introduced to the concept of local bands, which never like I had no idea that you could do that. And after watching, right. yeah, we we all go through that at some point, and a lot of times we have punk to thank, even if it's a different kind of music we eventually pursue. So, how old were you when uh, this was, uh, revelation happened? I, this was right about uh, I was about I'd say 13, 14 Okay, when I got introduced to all of this stuff. Twelve, thirteen. And then 14, I was able, as I got older, my parents would let me be there more often at night. And then I was able to see whatever shows were happening there. And uh, that's how I got it. What was your favorite music before you discovered local music and underground bands? I really liked old, like, my father was really into blues. So I was really interested by, but I liked the more folky backwoods blues that he would listen to, I found more interesting. And then my mother was a super surfer girl. So I was really introduced to Jan and Dean and Beach Boys and just like Dick Dale and like all those sounds. And they both listened to a lot of rock and roll. My father was a guitar player and he always tried to get all of us to play music, but it didn't work for the longest time. But in the end it worked out because literally my all my siblings play play instruments now but as kids we were a disappointment at first because we were just were not interested and didn't take until i saw all these shows happening and i decided that i wanted to play myself i wanted to be on stage and try it i wanted to do my own version of band and i'll never forget how happy he was when i came home and i was like i think i want to play music and he's like finally (laughs) finally (laughs) I didn't know you had stage parents. My God. Yeah, well, they were always really supportive. I wouldn't go so far as stage parents, but my dad always played. There was always music around. Um, but then they they both were in, you know, they both go to shows a lot. Um, so they were always really supportive, though. I think my father was far more supportive than my mom at the concept of me, like, doing bands. But then uh, right. we didn't, when I talked to my friends and we're like, okay, we're going to do a band. And like, my best friend played drums and I was like, okay, you play drums. And then we knew a bunch of guitarists, but nobody knew a bass player. So I was like, initially I was going to manage the band, like some sort of 50, like 17 year old Svengali that I envisioned myself. But then I was like, okay, we don't have a bass player. I'll be the bass player. I'll learn bass. So uh, my father, I think traded a bunch of weed and uh, some guitar parts to get a, 1971 Fender Telecaster bass for me from some I didn't know there was studio. such a thing as a Telecaster bass there it's the most enormous <laughs> bass in the world and it's like it's got a thick neck it's like baby shit brown and but I loved it it was heavy it's totally inappropriate for punk rock because it has this deep beautiful tone but it's like you start playing it fast and it starts sounding like bathtub farts. It's just too much oh, for it. Yeah, yeah. But it's what I had. And so I started learning and I formed a ska punk band 
before I had ever heard of a ska punk band. Like I thought I was being super original because I like ska and I love punk. And I was like, what if we did a band where it's ska for verses and then it gets like heavy for, for the, for the chorus. Wouldn't that be cool? And then everyone was like, yeah. And then somebody was like, that's awesome. Have you ever heard of operation Ivy? And I was like, who? (laughs) No. (laughs) And they had, apparently just broken up but i i thought i was this genius coming up with this completely new idea that was already done but but we started and i i within three months of me picking up the bass i had started a band and we uh we got uh this that's a very punk rock way to go about it yeah i was terrible everyone was terrible but it was actually a really good band we found this 14 year old girl uh vanessa who was singing at a coffee house that we were at and i asked she was amazing so i asked her to sing in our band i mean keep in mind i I was 18 i think and then i think the guitarist was 16 the other drummer was 18 and then we had a 14 15 year 15 year old singer by the time we started playing by the time we started playing shows and then we actually got to the point where we were headlining our own shows. Like we built up a pretty big following and then uh and then it and then it exploded. But it was a really good test run. Like I looking back, I now realize it was a dry run for Tsunami Bomb. Like it like things. Oh, so this wasn't Tsunami Bomb itself? No, no. The I, I actually did a number of really terrible bands before I found my way to Tsunami Bomb. Um but yeah, that's how I got started doing music and how I found my way into all of this was I just wanted to take part. I wanted to be a part of it. I, I wanted to be more than just like I uh, than an audience member. I, I felt like I could do more. So I. Yeah, you're, you're very, very fortunate then to have come along when you did, because when I came along, there was no participation of youth doing their own bands at all. And in my parents' household, they were classical people with a little bit of Pete Seeger and whatnot. You either play piano or you play folk songs or you don't play anything in this house. You know, at one <laughs> point I wanted to try drums. No. <laughs> And talk about electric guitar. Well, here's a book of folk songs. And that, as they say, was that. And then until punk really took off, the very idea of younger people starting their own bands, which, of course, many did in the 60s. And some of those bands are still together today. But uh, it was just unheard of then. So and punk, of course, blew that back open again for everybody, not just with music, but you could do your own media too, fanzines and beyond. And it it changed everything and not just for punk or new wave, as they called it. But that just rippled and rippled and rippled and rippled to the point where now anybody, you know, can if they want really want to start playing or do a band, they can if they really have that desire, they can do it at any time. And not worry about whether they're quote unquote good or not. Just do it because eventually, you know, you either get good or you've just got something so wild and whack straight out of the gate that, uh, you know, it's going to take off from there. Or you're going to make some really weird EP that is even harder to get a hold of than Mayhem on the High Seas. <laughs> there was 15 year old kids going completely nuts who put out a hundred copies in their little Midwestern town. Nobody ever knew about it again. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
but you had there were places to play. You had other. You met more and more people, of course, at the Phoenix Theater, which to me the Phoenix Theater. It's a big old hollowed out theater that in one way looks just completely trashed and destroyed inside. On the other hand, it also means it's punk proof and experiment proof and they can do all kinds of different things in there and run by people who are open to all kinds of different participation. It's sort of like a much larger version of Gilman Street in the way it looks and the whole thing, but it's... uh, you know, it's more cosmopolitan and you can do things big and small. And I tip my hat to them. Yeah, it really was defined. The diff- it, it, it very much is a North Bay, the, for those listening, the northern part of the Bay Area versus the East Bay. We, I was definitely part of the North Bay tribe of bands and kids. Right. Because the Phoenix Theater very much was a good answer to uh, Gilman Street. Except um, the difference was, whereas Gilman had like a group that ran it, we were we had a benevolent benevolent dictator in the sense of Tom Gaffey, who was just incredibly kind and encouraging and open to it and patient with all these kids. Uh, the the town initially was not so friendly with the Phoenix Theater, but then as generations grew up and took over the town, uh, he eventually was given the key to the city or the equivalent in Petaluma, and now it's a nonprofit. Uh, with a lot of support from local businesses and it's much more of a friendlier environment because he's just helped so many kids and then to provide a stage like that. So that's what's created Tsunami Bomb. And I didn't, I didn't know how fortunate we were until in Tsunami Bomb, I started touring and playing other places and I realized how rare that was. Uh, So we were really lucky because, you know, basically when Tsunami Bomb started. By that time, I was trying to start a band that I wanted. I'd been really frustrated with some of my bands that I had done already. I felt like it didn't quite pull off. The initial idea was to do something that was like a complete comic book. I was really into manga and anime uh, and Japanese comics and stuff, and as well as superhero comic books. So our initial idea is that Tsunami Bomb was going to be this. We all were going to have superhero names. And then we were going to uh, present like a crazy show, sometimes with masks. And we wanted to do something that was going to be way wilder than we ever. We were <laughs> we were pu- we were punching for the moon, and then we just never it's got starting to, that to point. sound like Guar. Almost honestly, the initial ideas is a much more nerdier Guar, but uh, we never got there. Like. At the, at the same time, we just got it. It was just such an effort to get uh, people to play with us. Like there was a core group of Oubliette and myself. And, you know, we were trying to just get everybody big, borrow and steal members. So it was like quickly. And the Oubliette idea... is a woman who plays keyboards to this day. Yes. So I started. <laughs> so Courtney and I met at the Phoenix Theater. She was actually uh, my younger brother's age. And I th- I think I actually not to bust her, but I think I one of the times I met her, I caught them making out at the Phoenix Theater. Like they were a lot younger than me, but they were like only about five years younger than me. But like they were all it was an all, all ages that hung out there. So it's like but I was always really impressed with her. And I knew that she was a musician and was in, you know, she, her parents had taught her piano and then she was like picking up guitar 
And I remember she was the first person I asked to do it because I was like, you know what? I just, to even to this day, you meet her, you do not forget her. She is amazing. And uh, there was just something about this kid, you know? So it's like, and I liked her. She had a lot of attitude. She was, you know, she just didn't care. So I went and I was like, you want to do a band? And she was like, okay. And I was like, all right. So you'll be the guitarist. And she's like, oh, no, I, I suck at guitar. I'm going to play keyboard. And I'm like, what? So I want to play keyboard. And I was like, I, I don't know what to do with the keyboard. I've never been in a band with a keyboard. I don't know what to do with that. And she's like, well, tough. That's what I'm playing. And if you want to play with me and then we're playing, I'm playing a keyboard. And I'm like, okay, okay. Do you want to sing? And she's like, no, no, no. I want to play keyboard. I mean, I'll sing backups, but no. And I'm like, okay, all right. Then we have a keyboard. So you didn't really have a sound planned out ahead of time or a desired sound or did you, but then the keyboard threw a wrench in it and ultimately maybe you smelled it was going to make you more unique. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that didn't occur to me till later. Like, I mean, I knew to say like, okay, one of the things about the scene that I came from in the North Bay is that it felt like at that time, every band was trying way harder to be as unique as possible. I don't always, this isn't a read on people, but I don't always see that in bands, uh, that desire to like, how do I take everything I love and make it like, I'm unlike anybody else. I have to stand out. And I mean, another North Bay band who's very fond of the Phoenix and maybe draws bigger crowds than anywhere else, of course, is victims family. They, and that was part of their agreement when they first decided, Alf and Larry first decided to play together is, okay, we love the energy of hardcore, but we do not want to be a hardcore band. Energy, yes, but sound, we can do better. We can do more. Yeah, they were a, definitely uh, an inspiration at that time for us. Uh, one of one of the many, because it was like, during that time, a lot of the funk and jazz sounds had found their way into a lot of bands that were playing locally, and it was really interesting. And so, but I mean, I wasn't a funk player. I wasn't I wasn't experienced enough for that. But I, but I knew that I liked darker, fun music, and I wanted to really grab people. And a lot of the stuff that was able to carry over with Tsunami Bomb was the idea that we wanted to be the band that we would love. Like, what kind of band would we fall in love with? And then how would we, what would we make? What would we do? Um, And that dictated everything. That was the plan. And then the sound just kind of evolved between Courtney and myself writing. And then as the members came, um, you know, it it worked out. What ended up happening, our first release is called B-Movie Queens, and it's a split with a band called Plinky. And Plinky was uh, one of my roommate and one of my best friend's younger sister's band. Um, and they were playing, and we started playing shows with them. And uh, Emily was the bassist and singer. And <laughs> one holiday break, our singer... Uh, June from uh, Tsunami Bomb informed us that she was transferring to Portland. And then they found out their guitarist was transferring out from, so they were all Sonoma State students. 
So all of a sudden our bands had these openings and we had only, we had begged and borrowed guitar players. We never had a guitarist. So their drummer became our guitarist and their bassist singer became our standing singer and would sing with uh, Oubliette. And that's how the first real version of Tsunami Bomb came together uh, was the, we absorbed a band that we were trying to do a split with. By the time the split came out, the singer, Emily, she sings on the Plinky side and then she sings on the Tsunami Bomb side because by the time we were able to record, she was in the band. So, and Plinky was done. So we were, we merged. merger. Yeah. So we merged two bands and then uh, we got, we managed to finally pick up, we had a, a different drummer at first, but then we were able to pick up Gabe, who was just a fantastic drummer. He was like a metronome even back then. And uh, he was in this industrial punkish band that was good, but didn't quite, it was great actually, but didn't quite get there. And he joined us and he's been in the band ever since. And so that's when it really came together. We'd been together for about a year or so by the time that happened. But then, and it was funny. I got to say this. It was funny because at the time we got a lot of crap (laughs) from everybody for changing a singer and for changing members. So that's that's been a thing that Tsunami Mom has had to deal with a couple times, and I've had to witness yes. it a few times. So, you know, I understand, but it was like, you know, we had to win people over back then, uh, just like we had to do a couple years ago now. And um, So what, but, what, what was the name of the drummer's industrial band? They were called uh, Brazil. Oh, <laughs> and then, yeah. Yeah, it was a local. Not somebody was, had heard of then. No, it was a local band, but it was really good. Um, but it was, it never, it never left Petaluma. Uh, it was a, a completely home Sonoma County, uh, band. So how often did you even play outside of Sonoma County? We started, uh, at first we started playing locally and that was our goal. We played a lot. And I remember running into Kepi Gooley from the Groovy Ghoulies. We got to open for them one time. And I remember asking him, I was like, how do I become you? Like, how do I go from here and then I'm on lookout? Because actually that was one of the things, that was another plan that we kind of had is that we were like, I want to be a lookout band. Uh, So I was like, how do I get there? And he was like, okay, well, first off, you got to play outside of here and you got to go places and play and build a crowd. But it's like, if you see a label that you really like, you need to play with the bands on that label and they will tell the label about you. And if you're awesome and you keep doing it, like, and you do well, then that label will pick you up and, uh, and you can go from there. And that was like the best advice ever at that time. Cause I had no idea, like I had no idea how I would ever capture the attention of lookout or alternative tentacles or fat or any, I was like, I don't, I don't even know how to get on your radar. Like I'm just out here in Petaluma, uh, I got a crowd. Well, you come ride with us, but uh, well, you know, we weren't lookout. What can I say? <laughs> well, it was initially like that was I, the label to be on at that time. Well, it was really funny that you said when you said like you were like, oh, I wonder if they needed the label. Tsunami Bomb had a re- has always had a very hard time for finding a home. It it has never huh. been easy. We didn't have a label for a very long time. We toured behind two seven inches, like the Me Movie Queen Queen split we put out. And then eventually 
Hunter from AFI was coming to our shows, the bass player, Hunter Bergen. And he started a label called Checkmate Records. And he came to us and he was like, I'd like to put out your 7-inch on Checkmate Records. And we're like, yes, yes, that would be great. So that's how Mayhem on the High Seas came about. So starting out, we didn't have a CD. We didn't have cassettes. We had two 7-inches that I had to beg people to buy for $3 each. And we toured behind that. But after that conversation, that's about the time we started getting out there, started playing shows, and people started discovering us. And AFI was one of the early bands to kind of find us like through Hunter and kind of take us under a wing. And uh-huh. uh, that was a huge, putting out that seven inch really put us out there. People started like who loved AFI, who were from Ukiah, just a few, like a few miles of, of north of us, um, discovered Tsunami Bomb. And that was our first big like introduction to anyone. So touring around California and Arizona, we, we would tour, tour, our first tours were like down south and then, then as I joked, and then east. So Arizona, New Mexico, we started like hitting those places. And that's what but we did. you even play in San Francisco or not? We tried, but not often. Like San Francisco was a tough nut to crack back then. Like, so we tried to play around San Francisco to the point where we would have enough of a draw when we finally got into San Francisco. And then we did eventually, you know, Sonoma Bomb's always been one of those bands that everybody who loves it thinks that we're a big secret and they're the only ones that love us. And I always seem surprised that there are like other people who are into it. So then we'll play a show. And then I remember people being shocked how many people we were bringing. Cause it was like, We've been doing this for like, we've been begging people to get into our band so it took a while yeah, I, mean, but... I mean you were headlining slims when i saw that so it blew my mind when we talked about this later that of all bands with that kind of an audience that kind of a following you never played at gilman street we played gilman i literally you can count on one hand the amount of time like less i think maybe twice. you never did no, we did twice, but it was far later than you would expect. Like we were already touring a lot by then and the shows were great, but like they did, they were Gilman did not get behind us. Like we had a really hard time breaking into certain places and Gilman has always been to this day, very like eh, unimpressed with us. So, uh, but I mean, it just was never, uh, it never got to be a place that we went a lot. We wanted to, but they they didn't really want us. We got on in roundabout ways. We get on like their weird like, all right, we put together a Halloween show with a bunch of bands that have been trying to play here, and you guys can do that. And then it would go really well, but then we wouldn't get invited back, or I'd hit them up, yeah. and they're like, oh yeah, we'll find something, and then nothing. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it was Gilman was not really uh never really opened the doors for us a lot like uh which was odd in retrospect because like a lot of people, you know, I've I've talked to people who work and volunteer at Gilman and they're like, "Oh, you guys got to come back here." And I was like, "I'd love to." And then nothing ever happens whenever we ask. So And by then somehow you were making albums and stuff and you'd vaulted up onto that bracket and then playing overseas. Or was that a little late later? That was a little later. So what happened is we started touring behind these two seven inches over and over again. Uh, and which 
is crazy to me that we did that because that was at a time when seven inches were not popular. That was all about CDs, but we couldn't afford a CD. We had seven inches. So, um, but then we had become really close friends from the beginning. The first shows we'd ever have was this band out of Sacramento called Lucky Strike. And they were very good, uh, very pop punk rock band and they taught us a lot about touring they brought us on some of their some of our first trips anywhere and Uh um they were on a label called tomato head records and tomato head records was the drummer from skank and pickle when Uh skank and pickle was going they had a label called dill and then when dill ended the two partners that ran dill the drummer and the singer split off and formed two different labels of their own uh, with some of the assets they had, and that was Tomato Head Records and Asian Man Records. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Tomato Head was looking for new bands to bring into the fold, and they found us through Tsunami Bomb, and they agreed to put out an EP for us on a CD, and that was called The Invasion From Within. So that gave us a CD to tour behind, and then it gave us more excuse to tour with Lucky Strike and some of the bands associated with that, and it kind of Again, it kind of helped. It was another person from a larger band that was known that was into us and willing to help us out. And so after that, we toured a lot just on our own, going back and forth. And then um, nobody was interested after that. Like Tomato Head was kind of struggling and ended up uh, through a bunch of other things, kind of not being in a position to do anything more with us. Uh, and they ended up kind of ending soon after, but we did well on there. Um, but no one was interested. We submit stuff and everybody, it felt like everybody said no. Uh, I felt like we were too poppy for alternative tentacles. I would have loved to have been on alternative tentacles, but like we had sent stuff to Epitaph and they told us at the time that they didn't sign girl bands. Which was totally what they said. They would deny that now. Very interesting. Now that I think of their roster, that may still apply. Yeah. When I asked, I was like, "What about the Distillers, who they had just signed at the time?" And they were like, "That's that's Tim's girl." And I was like, "That's Hellcat." And I was like, "Okay, can I talk to him?" And they're like, "No." (laughs) And I was like, "Okay." And then. we we sent our stuff to Fat, or, or, you know, we had played shows with the Ataris, actually. And uh, Christopher Rowe, the singer of the Ataris, he and all the members and his wife at the time and all their girlfriends at the time, they all really loved us, which was really cool. And he would call me up and he's like, okay, call this number and talk to them. This is Fat Records. See, they, tell them I sent you and you got to talk to them. And I was like, okay. So I called Fat Records and they they put me on and they're like, they answered. And I was like, hi, my name is Dominic Davi from Tsunami Bomb. And uh, Christopher Rowe from the Ataris told me to call. And they're like, hold on. And I'm sitting there listening to hold music. And then Mark Tamo, not to call him out because he's a really nice guy. But the GM at the time gets on the phone and he goes, hey, yeah, we're not interested. We don't like your name. And I was like, our name? <laughs> And they're like, yeah, man, it's just not, we're not into it. And I was like, but, and I swear to God, I said, this This is exactly what I said. I was like, you put out a album from a band called dog piss. And he was like, (laughs) 
yeah, I know. I know. And I was like, <laughs> but you don't like our name? And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and they're well, like, what was right. their problem with it? I don't know. They never really explained it. Uh, they said they were yeah. sweet enough to say later that they really regret that. But I think somebody, I don't know if it was Mike or Aaron or him or someone else, like just didn't like the name Tsunami Bomb. And that was it. And uh, <laughs> Side One Dummy, we yeah, submitted. I, I, I learned later just how uptight and shall we say unpunk some of those labels devolved into oh this is too harsh oh this is too this this is too that i mean part of the reason that we uh had leftover crack for a while was um whatever other reasons caused the falling out with hellcat one of the things that planted the seeds was the leftover crack album they did put out was supposed to be called shoot the kids at school <laughs> too negative oh my god yeah oh. And yet you'd put out a band called Leftover Crack. Okay, well, whatever. It's a great name. That's what interested me in them initially. And then um, the one we did initially was called Fuck World Trade. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, their own take on 911 and the dark side of so-called free trade, which turned into NAFTA and the WTO and this, that, and the other. The cover is the burning towers with gas pumps on it and stuff. Very volatile at the time, but apparently the part that Hellcat and, um, what was Anti-Flags label? Just AF? Wasn't that the name yeah, of Anti-Flags yeah. label? Yeah. They wouldn't touch it either because it was too negative. And, okay. and, 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 <laughs> and Anti-Flags supposed to be a political clashoid, you know, band that gives a shit, right? But ooh, we can't have that. But apparently another reason was they didn't like the word fuck in the title because there was a, they were afraid all these chain stores wouldn't touch it because it had that naughty word in the title and everything. Yeah, so, it's, uh, it's you know, and we, we had no problem with shoot the kids at school or fuck world trade. <laughs> I mean, look who's running the label, who's put out the crucifix, too drunk to fuck, brujeria, blowfly at the time and more. We were fine with that. Yeah, I I didn't have any connection to AT. I didn't know how I would ever get your guys' attention. And I was suddenly realizing, like, nobody wants us. Like, no one wants us. We've always been a... We're a much weirder duck of a band than I, I thought we were. But, like, I feel like people have a hard time fitting us into anything. And uh, I remember we... Somebody who took an interest early on, too, was Kevin Lyman actually from Warp Tour, and he pushed us to Side One Dummy. And I remember that Side One Dummy didn't want us. They told us, no, but we're going to hook you up and see if we get a finder's fee of some sort by post pushing you to a major. And it was like, I was like, that's not... Oh, good God. Okay, I'm not trying to do that. Like, I'm not... I just... I want... We are a punk band, and we might be a weird punk band, but we are a punk band, and we would like to be a part of the punk rock scene. I'm just trying to find a home. And I was, like, getting to the point where I was like, okay, we're just going to do this ourselves. Um, but that's when we started playing. The Ataris hooked us up with the Vandals, who put us on some shows, and they were, they've told me that what happened was, is, like, Christopher Rowe was, like, really talking us up. They put us on some shows. They were blown away by how much, how much people we brought and then how much merch we were selling because 
uh, the the thought of the day, this is the early 2000s, is that, the, it sucks to say this, but this is how people thought, girl bands don't sell merch. So they saw That's us play that. and they they're, they were like, oh my God, they sell as much as No Doubt, who was the great exception uh, to that. Uh, and they couldn't believe how much we had were selling and so Kung Fu Records offered us a record deal, and that's how we ended up on Kung Fu Records, because the Vandals played like a string of shows just as a favor to Christopher Rowe, and that's how we put out wow. uh, the record. Well, they'll interject with a word to the wise, even if it sounds antiquated in this day and age, about how to approach labels where you don't know anybody or anything. I mean, even to this day, Alternative Tentacles still gets a fair number of demo packets from unknown bands, an unusually high number from Italy to this day, all things considered. You know, when was the last time we were able to put out an Italian band? We tried for Cheetah Chrome motherfuckers twice and weren't able to do it at the end of the day. But, um, so, but... But now what we get, well, a lot of people email the label, look at our band camp. We want you to listen to us. Completely oblivious to the fact that nobody at the label, least of all me or you, has time to sit in front of a screen and go through people's band camps as a passive person and everything. I mean, the reason I demand hard copies is most of the demo listening is done in my car. (laughs) <laughs> That's my radio is Demo Gong Show. Cassette mm-hmm. or CD, it's Demo Gong Show. You know, of course, in the minute I hear anything that sounds like the Eagles with loud guitars and whiny, stupid boy-girl lyrics, in other words, pop punk, out of the stereo it goes. What? But um, since some bands start with two pop punk songs, so they think that's what everybody, what even I would want to hear, and then suddenly it gets good if I give it enough of a chance and stuff. But more to the point, well, in the case of Tsunami Bomb, if you'd sent me that Mayhem on the High C 7-inch, I would have been all over you, at least to the point of whiting you myself and then when is your next show? When and where is your next show? That would have been and nice. And sniffed out from there. But this this is just me. I mean, getting on AT, in large part, you know, you got to be really good live. you got to be kind of musically unique and fiery and hopefully a little bit demented at the same time, although that isn't totally across the board, but that can certainly help. And the, the other part of the equation, of course, is do we even have any money yeah. right now? The only reason we picked up No Means No was finally they sent us a really good recording that captured the live band in the form of the Sex Mad album. And yes, there was money to put them out. So we jumped on it immediately. And the rest is uh, fulfilling history and all. But also, the another thing, if people are sending stuff by snail mail, then uh, especially if you know somebody's a vinyl junkie and you have vinyl, of course, send that. And or whatever but uh, the more you showcase something unique the better i mean not everybody can send a video and be guar you know so i don't usually you know bother with the videos at all and i except on rare occasions but um something that clues you in you know the the way it's approached you know maybe the lyrics something i don't need like 30 pages of press cuttings on how much you love the earth and are wasting trees at the same time. You know, we don't really, we don't really need that. Just keep it short, keep it sweet. But, and, but in this day and age for crying out loud, 
in the digital age of Bandcamp, if you're sending a hard copy to somebody like me, especially, and I can't get back to everybody. I'm sorry. There's no time. I try, but it's just, you know, it's way out of my hands at this point. That'd be all you do. I, I try. But at the same time, um, you wouldn't believe how many people sending in CDRs or sometimes even vinyl as well as cassettes, there is no return address on the packet and no email address. Sometimes no cover letter, anything at all. Just here's a, here's a CD with nothing. Yeah. I And every once in a while... One of those is really cool. I'd yeah. like to, you know, you know, if we're if we're even in in the British Midlands, maybe we could get them on a Guantanamo School of Medicine bill or something, and can help this band out because they sound really good, but they don't provide any contact info at all. Oh well, maybe you should just Google online and look from there. But that's how much time and patience is there in the day for things like that? You know, lay it all out, and then it's easier. And uh, you never know what could happen. Yeah, so, I, but... I feel definitely strongly that like some of the advice, the advice that Kepi Gooley gave me all those years ago is very accurate. Like if there's a band that's making noise, playing with our acts or anyone on the label, I'm going to find out about it. And honestly, I would add to it. That's a like, really good point that I, that I haven't thought much about. Although back when things were going well with them, Neurosis pushed us or pushed me to see dead and gone mm -hmm. we pick up dead and gone and then they're really pushing 400 blows who we almost worked with eventually and the phantom limbs right That's, and i was just stunned when i saw the phantom limbs and how unique they were gilbert and sullivan keyboard driven punk with a really good front man even ended with a screamers song although they didn't sound like the screamers per se mm -hmm. but i wondered if they knew them oh they do and then i talked to them and no label had ever approached them yeah and they, considering you you know the caliber of that band and eventually what a cult they had and everything right i couldn't believe that so jumped in and there we were and then I, mean, I was it them or maybe it was Michelle working at AT, the publicist at the time, who first pushed the fleshies. And they were on the same bill at Gilman as the Phantom Limbs. And we wound up with two bands in one night out of that. <laughs> the, first I mean, and only time that ever happened. But, you know, even if the records were good, whatever, are. seeing live is where you really know what's going on. Every once in a while, I'll even get so intoxicated after seeing a band live, I offer the label to them before maybe I should. That hooked up us up with MIA and uh, Grady and I think, well, ultimately the legendary Shack Shakers too. Although, you know, we they were they'd been around the block on some other labels first before they came to us. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like I think I think that that definitely yes your live show you play with our bands we're gonna notice that uh, I definitely would also say I'm even more cagier I think about stuff than you whereas I tell them like look if Alternative Tentacles gets a demo from you and I listen to it and I look and I see you have zero like you don't have followers there doesn't seem to be any play i can't tell like doesn't look like it looks like you're just playing local shows there's nothing wrong with any of that but don't run before you walk i gotta see something you gotta show me something something's got to be brought to the table 
like my advice to bands that are looking to get on a label, looking to get on alternative tentacles, I would 100% say play, play and build, build an audience, build your show, build and your don't app. wait your for us show. or any other label. If need be, just put it out yourself. Go get behind your exactly. another one of our our fellow tentacles, uh, Kevin Risden was tied with a band called Isn't It Glowing Brain? Not Growing Brain, Glowing Brain. And of the ones he, he handed me, we should look at these, that was the one that jumped out as being really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And eventually, as Kevin put it, they got tired of waiting for us and put the album out themselves. Good. Bravo. I yeah. had no idea they were even waiting for us. And I don't know. I guess nobody approached them about stocking them in mail order, at least, if they even have any left. And they've come up here once, but it was during COVID, and I didn't go to any shows at that point, so I've never seen them. But that that was one that struck me. Yeah, we stock them now. But, I mean, yeah. at the same time. But, yeah, that's it. Like, go. Don't wait. Keep going. Keep building. Because you're only looking more interesting. You're only I mean, there's some more. Dance With Me TSOL in there. There's some Victim's Family in there. There's some, maybe even some Unsane in there. They, they, they've got something, basically. Yeah. And you got to have something. Because it's like, how am I, which one of my jobs is, is to convince Kansas to buy your records. To convince a state that you're not in the late record stores to take an interest in your band in our release and put it in their store. And if you're not going there or you're not putting content out, you're not building anything or, for example, you don't have a, a, a big a big audience in your state, in your place. So that helps balance the fact that nobody in Kansas cares about you at all. Like I need, I need your help. I need you to help me help you. And the more you do, the better. So it's like a hundred percent play. And then as you play, try to get shows with the label acts that you like, because if they like you, we're going to hear about it. We're paying attention to who they're playing with. And if the darts or legendary shack shakers or Arnocore or, you know, Spindrift, any of them, come to me and go, you got to check these guys out. I'm going to check these guys out. We're going to look. Yeah, uh, and so do the it. more you do, and then the more you create for yourself, the more you offer to people who have to use whatever you've created and sell you everywhere else. Yeah. It's totally I mean, the doable. antithesis of that, unfortunately, I knew well who the band was. We got offered Melt Banana really? way back. Uh, and... I thought we didn't have the money because there was a new Alice Donut and a new Tribe 8 that was supposed to come out right around then. And that was where all the money went. And both those came in way late. And mm. we could have added Melt Banana, who then instead fun. just went to Revolver and did their own label that's manufactured, distributed by Revolver. And that's where they've been ever since. And they are, you know, and they are a bigger band now than then as well as who knows when they're going to stop getting more and more and more intense as time goes on. Yeah. You know, that was, that was, that was a, a great dropped ball in a way, but it was, I didn't think we had the money. So what could we do? There is that, that impact on is so much of a thing that people don't realize of how much the funds uh, dictate a lot. And, you know, AT yeah. has so many obligations to the bands that we have, as well as, keeping our catalog in 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 press 
and keeping it out well, there. Well, attempting to keep our catalog in print <laughs> because Ludacra played a reunion show last night and it was the best show I ever saw them play. And I was like, oh my God, is it our fault they didn't get as big as Neurosis? That they, they, they were that good. And uh, But then I thought, oh my God, if they really try to relaunch the band, which unfortunately was not the plan and is not the plan, we were out of stock on vinyl and CD on Ludacra completely. We were. We are. Just but, like what happened when Cross Stitched Eyes came over here the last time, you know. And, you know, the more and more people buy the mail order stuff, or at least they were during COVID. But then we kept running out of more and more things and had no hope of making any more. Not just because of money, but because it takes so long to get anything made now. And, of course, on top of it, our main pressing plant, Rainbow, quit business and you thankfully went down there and got some of the friends from la machina who we only managed to do one seven inch before that band blew up and um got our stuff out of rainbow but that means yes we got all these mothers plates stampers what have you to make more discs but every single one we have to test press them first to make sure the thing is still usable and wasn't damaged because some of them came from a previous plant that went under Alberti and then moved over to Rainbow, and we hadn't made any of them since. We thought the Biafra DOA Last Scream of the Mystic Neighbors thing was gone, and we had to rebuild it from scratch. And then there's the pieces in the envelope with something else, and Jesse never knew it was there. And so then we got a test pressing, and now I hope we're finally making them again because yeah. that's been gone for a long time. But when do we actually get them? Here we are doing biz talk on other people's time, namely the <laughs> listeners. So this is what's going on with all kinds of labels, even bigger one. I mean, all of a sudden, oh, God, what's his name? Was it Harry Styles or one of the other ones? Ed Sheeran. Suddenly he couldn't get his vinyl made for the big new album because Adele had all the plants booked. So yeah. Adele took all his ability to make I remember when Adele took over and ours too. Yeah, it she she blocked off a lot and it it just it it is the way it is. It's hard cuz now we drop so much money in advance and then we have to wait 4 to 6 months to get the record. And then it's time to get to, it takes time to get to everybody. So it's a tremendous investment in a product that we don't see a return to for well over a year. Oh, uh, I know. It used to be that you would get credit and you would pay later once the stuff was sold. Now you got to pay for all of it in advance or they won't make anything for you anymore, no. which is messing us up extremely and slowing things down even further. We are doing the best we can, hopefully not go fund me, but we may have to, to try and get more stuff made quicker. I mean, don't forget listeners out there, Renegade Roundtable, the money is not going to me, assuming eventually makes some, it's going to alternative tentacles to finally even maybe get Ludacra or the mentally ill or uh, Los Olvidados and drunk engines, which is further along in the schedule, get those back out and stuff too. People want them. They just can't have them right now, which is finally people want to buy all this stuff of ours, but they can't because it isn't there. So on that cheerful note, Back we go to uh, Kung Fu Records. Yeah. 
How <laughs> many releases or full-length albums did you even have out by then, or did it start with Kung Fu? Started with Kung Fu. That was our wow. first uh, debut record, and that was my first taste of actually um, the you know the idea of making a big LP that was going to really get out there because like the all of the distribution up to that point had been incredibly limited. This was the first like, okay, here we are. And then around that time we had really started doing warp tours and you know, so we were really, I think this probably would have been around the time that you found the mayhem on the high seas. Uh Uh, I think when you say like headlining slims, I I think that started around that time. And then, um, but that's when actually, huh? Does this mean that you had more than one album's worth of material learned and could record and you had to pick and choose and figure out what to put on the Kung Fu album? Or did you just make more songs and fill it up? We built up a bunch of songs and most of those songs made it to the album. Uh, that generally is was seen, that has probably been, that is the biggest album that we put out initially. And that and the it was the right is? time. Huh? Title? Uh, the Ultimate Escape, which came up with uh, that was that title is based off the fact of wanting to die after being on tour for so long. So <laughs> <laughs> the guitarist at the time, Mike, said, like, I just want to die. And I was like, well, that would be the ultimate escape from this tour. Uh, and that's the yeah, title. I, I warned people on AT or not that if you haven't done a lot of touring for crying out loud, take it a little bit at a time and do longer and longer ones because you're going to find out real quick how well you really get along with other people in your band. Not be one of these people who finally all goes camping in the woods together and then when they get home, they never talk to each other again. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we were uh, touring. These, you, 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 it, it's, it's something you kind of have to learn how to deal with and manage and, you know... <laughs> find your own space somehow if and when needed so it doesn't you know there's not more quarreling going on and you know things like that it's a it's a it's a brutal experiment yeah we put ourselves into the ground a hundred percent by the time we got to the full length oubliette had left the band and that was a bummer i i regret letting her go not working it out like she just wanted to move to San Diego and the idea of her moving elsewhere was just absolutely not okay with everybody with, by the time we had management and like everyone was tired, everyone was cranky. Everybody was starting to not get along. Her leaving was the beginning of the end. Even though we put out our biggest album right after that, it's she is all over that album. Even if she's not on there, her writing is very much a part of it. Uh, it's just the guitars took on some of the keyboard elements. We couldn't find a keyboard player to replace her, so we didn't. Uh, the unfortunate part of that was that the band became a little bit more typical without her, uh, and I feel like we lost a lot. And at the time, I didn't even realize how much. Plus, I had lost one of my best friends, um, and it was just uh, ugly. And then after that, it just got worse. And by the time they did their second album, The Definitive Act, they had actually kicked me out of the band. So, uh, well, as much as they could have, I still owned the band. I mean, I still had control over the name and, uh, you know, and I didn't sign off anything. I was like, no, get bent. I, I'm, I'm going to stay in it. But like I got convinced to let them keep going. 
And then they put out another album and that album did well. Um, I think it, it was called The Definitive Act. And uh, I feel like that album was their attempt to be very much in the moment of the scene that was happening at that time. And uh, I think there are good songs on it, but it just, you know, I think that after that, uh, it finally toured itself into the ground and fell apart. And that was that for Tsunami Bomb for a long time. And I didn't. There was only two albums before that little one with the white cover that was a mishmash that you gave me later came out. Yeah. So fast forward to 2015. 14, 2015, uh, Kung Fu Records, I had started working with to do publicity and social media for, and I was just sort of helping out. Uh, I was doing graphic design because they had lost their hard drive with a lot of their old art. So I was rebuilding some of the art of the old records. And um, they came to me and they were like, you know, your tsunami bomb still sells like we still sell a surprisingly amount of tsunami bomb and it's like they were like we would love to put out like all that old stuff we put it out as a collection and so around that time i had actually happened to start talking to oubliette about doing a new project and we had approached gabe our old drummer about doing a new project i wanted to just i just wanted to play with them again and i didn't even know how serious um we were all scattered in different cities but i was like who cares let's let's do a project let's do something together you know i think people would get there's a few people who'd get a kick out of it being you know odd people will know it's tsunami bomb people but like let's just do it who cares how it does and then around this time we have kung fu going hey we'll put out this record um so i talked to them and then we reached out to some of the other members that we weren't uh, getting along with as much but even they all agreed it would be nice to have out so we put together that white album that was called trust no one which is like the early years collection but at the time it was being worked on it was never going, we weren't going to be together. We were just putting together like, okay, here's this collection of the old stuff, the, the, the two seven inches, the, the six song EP, and then a couple extra things to throw in of how all the early day stuff came out about before then. I had argued to try and make it two EP 12 inches, but Kung Fu was like, no, you get one. Right. Just put it all together. The thing I, no- I noticed with the later stuff, as you say, it was much more homogenous. And a lot of the elements that I loved about Mayhem on the High Seas weren't really there so much anymore. And it was much more, dare I say, standard pop punk. Oubliette Sparks. Courtney. <laughs> Courtney. It was Courtney, the keyboard player Oubliette. Like, that's that's that. We once we lost her, and then I no longer had that person to write with. The fundamental sound we were trying for started. We started losing, and uh, but I, I mean, it was still a very good band. It was a very tight band. It toured the songs. There were some really good songs on all the release, even the one I'm not on. But yes. do you get a cut from the ones you're not on? 
No, I don't. I don't collect it. Right. I I make sure it goes to the the to the members that deserve it. To be honest, I wish it went to certain members, but there are there are members who have refused royalties, and I wish they wouldn't. I wish they'd take it. But huh. yeah, I had yeah. to straighten all that out and try and get the right people paid uh, what they what they what they deserve. Sonar bombs always split stuff uh, equally. Um, so every time it's like tsunami bomb is here's the members and then all those members get you know 20% or 25% if it's four of us and um that hasn't worked as well as i had liked uh in terms of certain members like kind of got hosed with certain things like that like for instance though oubliette contributed heavily to uh the ultimate escape once she wasn't in the band, she didn't get a cut of it for a long time. And that really bothered me. But uh, that, That's what they call publishing royalties. That not everybody splits apart anymore. Yeah. Thus, there's a lot of stuff with the later Dead Kennedy deals after it was yanked away where I'm not seeing the writer's stuff as far as I know. Yeah. And um, so not uh, anyway, yeah. but then... We get back to, okay, so there, there's the trust no one one, but then at some point, not long after, wasn't that when Kung Fu wasn't Kung Fu anymore and Joey Escalati sold the whole thing, including theoretically his own Vandals albums, to Cleopatra? Yes. However, by that time, um, during the time we, as we assembled this record right before that, like, that's when we thought, you know, it would be fun is if we got together and actually played a show or two to support this old, uh, this release, like, otherwise it's just going to come out and, you know, people may not know, you know, Kung Fu's not going to sink a ton of marketing dollars into it. It's, it, but like, we could get it out there if we played a show with them or played the show with the Vandals or something. And then all of a sudden my great idea of putting together a new project with the old members of Tsunami Bomb suddenly became them work wanting to do Tsunami Bomb. Uh, and um, unfortunately not everybody wanted to come back and not everyone wanted to do it. So we had to find somebody. I tried to get Courtney to just do the vocals and she was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. Um <laughs> So again, again, every time I try to get her to be a front person, she just tells me no. But um, we ended up finding uh, Emily did not want to come back and we had to respect that. And uh, she was just not interested. So we ended up finding Kate uh, Jacoby to take over vocals. And it was only supposed to be for a little while. We're only going to do a couple shows to just celebrate this music. And then we were... And then everyone said they were going to do the new project with me that I wanted to do. And then as it happened, all of our old friends were like, hey, this this is Tsunami Bomb. I mean, it sounds like Tsunami Bomb. So all of a sudden, everybody was like, I just want to do this. And I'm like, but we could do a new thing. And but but then around that time, as we started, we were just starting to open up. And I and I came around because we started doing shows and I started seeing that like bands now Nobody sounded like us. Nobody was doing what we were doing. Nobody was trying to do what we were doing. And uh, it felt like we still had a place in things. And the reaction of people kind of got us. To, we get we do a show and so great. People ask us to do more. So we started playing and playing. And all of a sudden, we're playing shows all the time. And uh, around this time, Kung Fu Records got sold to Cleopatra Records. 
and we were folded in. And I think at first we were very much not one of the acts or records that they were excited about. Like it wasn't us. It was more definitely about the Blink-182 record and the Vandals and the Ataris. I almost wonder if they would have just like, cause they were releasing records to certain artists. Uh, I almost wonder if they would have released ours, but then Rolling Stone came out with a top 50 pop punk albums of all time. And I think, and we were like 37 with the ultimate escape. And then that was it. And then they, then they were like, Oh, we're repressing this. And then they, they repressed all of, they ended up repressing all of the records. So now Cleopatra slash Kung Fu now puts out all of our, all of the, Did they respect the art and everything or do they repackage? No, they definitely respected the art as best they could. Uh, They haven't repackaged anything. They, they actually, they're very, kind to us they are but they're not very communicative (laughs) communicative so i don't always know that they're reissuing something until it's out like we find out with everybody else so i wish they would give us a heads up because it's like we would promote it like we would tell people there's a new edition of something coming out but like we we find out when everybody else finds out so that's the only annoyance but otherwise i've talked to them we've had a fairly good We've had a great relationship. I know they they are sitting on more um, stuff, and they're going to want to put it out. We've done a couple compilations with them. We put some songs on comps, and we've been very happy with how it's worked out. Um, so I don't have anything. I don't have anything negative to say about Cleopatra in my experience. They've been good, except for that they don't tell us when they put out stuff, and that's kind of annoying. But they. They are committed to putting out all the early stuff. And I know that they're going to probably put out, like I know they're sitting on a live record from us uh, from a DVD we did. So I fully expect to see that at some point. So, I mean, you know, so people who love my band, the early versions of my, of Tsunami Bomb, there are, there is a label that is putting it all out. So, right. Meanwhile, the Kate version with Oubliette, continues yeah so kate and oubliette suddenly become our front people we're suddenly finding ourselves doing tsunami bomb and i'm like how did i get here but it's it's going well i mean there are a lot of people who are a little weirded out that we had to change singers but it's one of those things where i'm like guys she didn't want to do it and i don't know what to tell you she didn't want to play with us she didn't want to come back she didn't want to do it she has her own thing go listen to that check it out, support her. That's it. We're doing this over here because we're doing this over here. Now they're reissuing all of our old records. So you can hear the old stuff. I know it's not the same. I know it's not what you necessarily remember, but you'd be surprised how much it more. It sounds like the old days than you think. But, uh, but overall it's like, but at this point now, ironically now today we've been together. This is the longest running version of tsunami bomb. Wow. Uh, Kate has been the singer of Tsunami Bomb as long as Emily had been the singer. And uh, she, she, considering how little she'd ever done it before, when you guys headlined the first night at Tentacle Fest, she handled it like a pro. She, you came, know, voice, magnetism, everything else. And I didn't see anybody complaining that it wasn't your earlier singer at no. all. 
Maybe some of them didn't know. I have no idea if they even look remotely alike. But uh, and you know, to my to my pleasant surprise, uh, you know, no Cleopatra for the newest album. It wound up on Alternative Tentacles instead. You would know what was going on with it at all times that way, wearing two hats, of course. Very convenient. So I was surprised. I was surprised we you made you happy. I was really surprised you were willing to put it out. I didn't think of I didn't think AT would be interested, especially working here and seeing what we were looking for. I'll never forget because I was submitting it to labels and you were like, What do you mean you're submitting stuff to labels? Why haven't you sent me anything? And I was like, I don't think you'd like it. I, I know you don't like like pop punky stuff, and you're like I put out Pansy Division. You're popular than Pansy Division? Like, just send me the stuff. I'll let you know. And then when you listened to it, you were like, I like it. What do you think? I actually liked it. And I was like, good. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's pop punk, but it's got to have something a little extra, which, of course, Leftover Crack really did when we had them. And Evaporators are arguably a pop punk band more than a a, uh, garage band, even though there's Nardwar playing the organ, including on top of people in the crowd and the Farfisa comes with him and stuff you know that 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 gives things a very distinct personality i mean they're also on mint in canada who's you know a successful label and and very very good at what they do to the point where they were selling more of theirs down here than we were being able to sell the american copies so um, we decided just to you know let let mint have nardwar and the videos and evaporators for the world again and stuff and off they've gone, but uh, we're, we're still buddies, of course. And um, so before we finish with Tsunami Bomb, um, I did notice at Tentacle Fest that overall the set, as I told you, it was more fiery and punky and heavy by Tsunami Bomb standards than the album we did. So we don't know what's coming next. I mean, we pick up World Inferno Friendship Society, finally, and they handed us a really mellow cabaret album. And then the next one, which unfortunately turned out to be the last one because we lost Jack Terrycloth, of course. Miss you terribly, my brother. But uh, it was a little more like earlier Tsunami Bomb. It excuse me, World Inferno and swung more. And just it was it was okay. this is kind of more what we were thinking of in the first place. And this is a band that, you know, has so many brains in it. They're going to go wherever they want to go to recording to recording. And so the stuff you've played me of next tsunami bomb was way more in the fiery direction. And, uh, I dig it. I think I, I I've told you that the more of this, please. Although I also considering the pop polish and the skills and Oubliette's talents and the voice and everything else. I told you afterwards at the tentacle fest. Okay. I'm laying down the gauntlet. Make me, make me your own parallel lines. You know, the greatest of all the Blondie albums, the only one I really like that much and stuff and it's it's all over the place and i think the songwriting or skill is there to if it ain't parallel lines it's going to be tsunami bombs thing but you know you've got the talent you've got the experience you got the chops the more you reach for the sky the happier all of you and all your followers are going to be so i look forward to it when eventually gets finished challenge accepted one of the things uh thank you um i think I'm very proud of our Alternative Tentacles record. Record, uh, it the it's called the Spine the Binds, and but I do think that we got 
we were very much in our own heads and we kind of got in our own way a little bit. And one of the reasons was, is that we felt that since we had changed, this was the, the big album that came out that we were changing vote. Like there's a new voice uh, and we believed in Kate and we loved her. And I, I've seen her just grow and she's such an incredible performer now. It's just amazing. Um, but we, we thought, okay, so we tried to keep in mind that the last thing everybody heard was the definitive act. And we wanted to keep the flow as best we could and bring it back to what, bring an album that would take what definitive act was and bring it back to what invasion from within was. And then still at the same time, introduce Kate and get us back on what we feel our track is. So we tried very hard to write something that brought in all the elements of Tsunami Bomb as people knew them to that point. And I, part of me now sits here and goes like, I feel like if an, if a band, if one of our bands came to us and just said that to me, I'd be like, what are you doing? Just write a great album. Stop thinking too hard. But at the time, <laughs> like it's different when it's you and you're in your own head and you're just thinking about, you know, you're trying to win back old fans, make new ones, bring the right. band back together and move it forward. I do feel that the spine that binds does that really well. We expected that record to have a tough reception. And then in the long run, I felt like people would hear these great songs and hear them live and understand like, Oh, these are great songs. I love this record. Um, as it was, it ended up getting the best reviews of any tsunami bomb record that tsunami bomb has ever received. So it's our most critically acclaimed record. Didn't but, know but I feel like when I, if I'm being honest, I, I also feel like we were so careful. We didn't quite catch the, the, the fire in the bottle, the, light, the lightning in the bottle that, that Tsunami Bomb has and that you can see live. So like you hear those songs on the recording, I feel like they are really well recorded. They're really good. And then you see them live and you're like, oh, I get what, okay, now I get it. And I think you experienced that where you're like, okay, because you told me once it's like, it's odd that this record sounds, reminds me the most of the record you're not on. Um <laughs> And I thought that was funny. Also, like, I guess that was the intention. But now I would say the way we're writing now is very much no apologies, no more expectations. It's writing. We're writing the best record that we can. The attempt, the the goal, as I guess always it is. But the goal is like this. We want every song to, which is why it's taking so long every song to be like you could make a set out of these songs this album could be a set complete start finish by itself there and i'm really happy in in my case in my case just to be real quick when we did fresh fruit we had a lot of what became in god we trust and plastic surgery disasters as well 
But a lot of bands who finally got to make an album would put out whatever the new stuff was and drop all their earlier stuff. And I decided to take a gamble. Guys, let's make this one the first batch of songs for the most part and get it all in order. Mm-hmm. And then we can do the other ones later. And consequently, and I'm very proud of this, um, scoping some of the things out, you know, in Cod We Trust was kind of a spontaneous thing inspired by the explosion out of Washington, D.C. with, you know, Teen Idols, SOA, and then Minor Threat and all that. We want, wanted to make a really wild back to hardcore thing, which in God We Trust also has bigger problem now in Riot and, and, and uh, Rawhide on it too. So what do you know? But, you know, the idea that everything, you know, okay, but but then plastic surgery can be expanding on the holiday in Cambodia side of the sound, but in God We Trust doesn't. So when people, some people really didn't like In God We Trust Incorporated, we got a petition from Scotland to save the dead Kennedys and stuff. And uh, I was like, well, maybe you'll like the next one, which then the In God We Trust people and people like Jeff Bale and Tim at MRR who liked that really didn't like plastic surgery disasters. Too bad. But in the long run, I'm very, very proud in a way that no two of my music albums have ever sounded alike. Yeah. Not even the Lard albums do. None of it does. And there's very two, two dis- very distinct ones I did with the Melvins and all the GSM ones are different, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's where the pressure lies. And ultimately, when I worry about it and get all insecure, ultimately it just happens anyway at the end of the day. And of course, one thing also to kind of, changed to another major subject at this point is of course there was more momentum going on maybe a year ago or or more or more or less on new tsunami bomb music but then there was a bit of a derailment yes known as out of the blue you of all people and what's your age now i'm 46 46 age 45 or 46 you suffered a major stroke. Yeah, it came out of nowhere. Um, the, it's it's so surreal how much that has affected me, and I'm I'm really grateful to be as uh, cognitively myself as I am, and to oh, yeah. it as well. I definitely still feel. Um issues from it especially when i get tired but it's you know even in this interview i've had to uh pick quickly thankfully it's happening quicker now but i have to pick an alternative word than what i would have said um because i can't get the word out so i've gotten to the point where i'm definitely i think where people aren't noticing but it's so much more effort to the best way I can describe it is it's so much more effort for me to communicate and be me than it used to be. Um, and I understand like how like Fetterman, for example, would be saying things during when he was debating uh, Dr. Oz. Right. John like, Fetterman, who was a Democratic candidate and an outstanding one and a real character too, who for senator to- in Pennsylvania, a very important thing to keep Mitch McConnell from becoming even more of a dictator than he already is wagging the dog and beheading it as well. And, uh, and didn't he have his stroke after you had yours? He did. Um, 
And, and then, of course, Dr. Oz and the Republican Nazis were saying, oh, look at this guy. He could never be a senator now. He's half retarded now. Look what happened to your grandma right before they died. It happened to him. He can't be a senator now. And they were getting all over him for stopping a little bit here and there at those debates. And I saw those. They were showing him over and over and over again. And man, I barely would have noticed it at all unless I was really looking for it. And even then, it sure didn't sound like a disaster or a derailment to me. His poll numbers went down, but he won anyway, perhaps because the witch doctor didn't even live in Pennsylvania and he was a Trump puppet and stuff. So, um, you know, enough people knew enough about Dr. Oz not to believe his doctor's advice about John Fetterman. So I take it you're confident that he's going to be much, much more competent and on the ball and able to do his job as a critically important senator who may wind up higher than the Senate in the long run. Um, yes. I you, do. you think he'll be able to pull it off? Yes, I completely do. Because inside, it's all there. But what happens when you're tired is that it's just everything that starts coming back. You start struggling to find the words. You start stumbling. Uh, you can get a little confused, but not. It's not detrimental. It's just it just exists. And of course, he's tired. He's been campaigning. He's preparing for the debate. Then he debates. He's not on the. He it's that's not him at a hundred percent. But I do. You know with. It, it takes very little rest to just get yourself back. I, I'm still experiencing that. We've been playing shows and it's getting better, but still there are times after shows, uh, performances that I, I still struggle. Um, yeah. And it just, and other times. And it, plus it's just you're a, a guy who has all kinds of things you want to do at any given time. And you're good at so many of them. You know, the, 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 you, know you have Jesse Townley or Jella Biafra syndrome of trying to do too many things at once. And that, that helps. It helps drain you. But do you think having not one, but two bands and still being a graphic designer, a comic book artist and whatnot is helping bring the full Dominic back? Yes. Because you're doing so much? Yes. I definitely immediately, I realized that when I was seeing the, when I was in the hospital bed afterwards, uh, it, it really made, I realized just how close I came uh, to dying and to worse, not being completely there. And the taste right. I got of... Right what it was like to listen to people talk to me and not quite understand them and then not be able to smoothly communicate backwards was such a, it was very profound. Um, I knew that there, there was never a moment where I thought that I wasn't going to do everything I could to bring myself back. Um, and I have pushed the boundaries all the way along uh, testing how far I could could push myself, and then when I can't go any further, I definitely rest. There's times I've hit walls many times, and there's times that people around me have been very worried about how far hard I'm pushing. But even they recognize that what I'm what I've been doing, and and even still, all this time later, I'm still doing it. Uh, is pushing it as far as I can so that I can 
expand and get back as much as I can. Like for a while it was hard to read and I would sit down with a book and I'd read paragraphs over and over again until I got them and then moved on to the next one. And now I can read again. And I I'm still working on my writing. Uh, I'm struggling to, I I was working on a, I was writing a book (laughs) and that came to an abrupt stop um, because it was getting, it's still hard for me to put, sentences together in a way that makes sense um but i'm getting better and it's just like doing it over and over again uh you know is the book a is it fiction is it a graphic novel or is it something else it's fiction i'm also working on a graphic novel as well but yeah uh Uh, so um of a particular possible horror project that we both know about, but uh, I'm also, but yeah, the book I was is something I've been working on for a long time, but it it all became very challenging. Um, you know, I still run into issues with numbers, sometimes switching yeah. them. I still now it's a lot of small little things that make you that definitely test one's patience. Like you, you doubt everything you're doing and you have to check it like a hundred times because you will literally see things wrong. Um, I'll interpret things wrong a lot more than I ever did before. But I mean, but that said, even if I'm like this for the rest of my life, I'll take it over right. what could have been the alternative, but it definitely yeah. hurt, hurt me. I, I definitely, well, as I, as I suggested, the more you say, you can tell people you're going to do stuff and whatnot, write everything down, especially when you're going to get another text a minute later and another call from somebody else and zig and zag and zig and zag. And, you know, I don't handle that very well all the time either, including neglecting to write things down. I still haven't gotten back to Chris about the reworked art for Will the Fetus Be Aborted, the single I did with Mojo Nixon that's on the album, which after Alito and Clarence Peeping Thomas and their handiwork is a more relevant song to have everywhere. I mean, Annie Kid Wolf already made a video for it and stuff that's up that's and cool. around. So uh, that song needs to be everywhere. The parody of Will the Circle Be Unbroken that Daryl Cherney and Judy Berry put together and stuff, and I covered them. But meanwhile, um, I think the most beneficial thing we can do here, of course, it's going through a lot of listeners' heads right now, I suspect, is, oh, my God, this could happen to me at any time. Even kids get strokes sometimes. So the fact that it can happen to anybody, including maybe even especially me with the heart weirdness we're trying to keep from causing strokes and stuff you know it's mild but you gotta be i got gotta be on it and stuff anyway um and you know about it too because i think you just had a heart procedure as well but um because of the stroke but anyway and so did nardwar after his second one same same procedure but anyway um how do you know or detect if you think you might be having a stroke, I have no idea or had no idea before I talked to you. So th- th- this is where we need the crash course. Well, it's funny. Cause I didn't know either. Of course. <laughs> like, thankfully my girlfriend, uh, Valerie Ott knew what was happening and was able to figure it out in time. But I mean, it, mine was also very obvious. 
Um, but what did you first feel? What did you first feel internally or in your head? You were at the beach or something, weren't you at Stinson Beach? It was a very stressful time for us. Like Valerie was working on cla- classwork. It was a particularly hard class for her. And then I was having a particularly tough time with AT. There was a lot of demands on, uh, you know, and was spread very thin. Finances were spread very thin. And I was just like, you know what? Let's take a break. Let's go to the beach. We went to this place called Stenson Beach, which is in Northern California, just a couple, like about 45 minutes north of uh, of uh, San Francisco. Oh, yeah. A lot um, of people know where it is. Yeah. Highway yeah, went and, right before the turnoff for Bolinas. Right. And it's really a great beach. It's probably the most Southern California feeling beach in the Northern California area or one of them. And so we just... It, you know, it takes us 40, 45 minutes to get out there. So we just headed out there. We were going to have lunch. We're going to sit on the water. It was just starting to get warm enough to be out there on the beach. The water was still cold. It's always pretty cold. But we, it was a really great day. We just needed a moment to breathe and just we got some deli sandwiches. And then we got we walked up to go to the water. And I remember that her and I are standing there and, and she's finding out just how cold Northern California waters can be. Uh, in April. And then we saw a a crab shell, uh, like a molted crab, like it molted and shed its extra shell and it's rolling in the water. And I was like, Oh my God, this is a whole crab shell, like an entire impression of a crab that is no longer there. It's just there, the outer shell that it molted. And I pointed and I was about to say, Oh, Hey, look at that. And I got out. Oh, oh, uh, uh." and then all of a sudden, no pain, but I couldn't say anything. All I could say was like, uh, 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 and it was the most. And your eyesight was okay. Everything was fine at, at first. I was like, and I kept like trying to say the word crab, crab shell, crab. And I just, uh, uh, uh. And I couldn't get anything out. Meanwhile, she kind of saw with my gesture. So she's like, oh, wow. And she like looked at it and like took a picture of it, I think. And then turned to me and she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, uh, I kept holding up my finger. I was like, one second. Because it felt like if I could just take a breath, I could obviously talk. But then I'd take the breath and I couldn't say anything. And I think she asked me at the time, it's like, "Are are you having a stroke? I didn't know what a stroke, I didn't know what it felt like. And I shook my head and she says, that's kind of funny that she asked me what it was because why would I know? Um, but she said that at this point I was drooling, uh, cause I think I was already starting to experience the paralyzation of my right side and it was so getting the face droop. Oh my. And, uh, I kept like, did it feel cold? Did the paralyzed parts start to feel cold? No, I didn't okay. notice that. I just noticed that I was like, I was so focused on like, talk. And I was, and I, it was unlike any feeling I have ever had because it doesn't make sense to not be able to speak. And it, it felt like almost like, I even had the thought of like, well, it's almost like one of those horror movies. Like you just can't, well, he's like, somebody says no more talking. And you're just like, or their mouth is gone. So like, she was like, Hey, let's go sit down. So she brought me back to where our towels were. And we had a beach tent and like, I'm, I'm sitting there 
and I put my shirt back on and I'm like, uh, uh, and she's like, you got to talk to me or I got, I, I have to do something here. And I grabbed my phone and I was going to text her and I went to unlock my phone and it didn't recognize my face, which now I realize it was because it was drooping so much. And then I couldn't, re- I started typing my code in and I couldn't remember it. It was gone. Like I just had no memory of my passcode and I just looked at it and I dropped it. I just set it down and I looked at her and I went, and she's like, that's it. And so she called 911 and gestured to another camper to go get help. Uh, another beach, uh, somebody on another towel to run and get lifeguards. And they came in and, and uh, they, they came in really fast and they started talking to her. And she's like, I think he's having a stroke. And they tried to get me to talk. I couldn't. They've tried to get me to follow the finger, the, their finger as my, with my eyes. And I did notice my head had to like turn. I couldn't. I was having trouble focusing on it. And I was like, okay. And in my head, I'm like, no pain. But I'm just like, this is really weird. I don't know why I can't talk. So they told me to like raise my arms. And then that moment, I raised both arms. But all of a sudden, my right arm felt sluggish. And I had to fight to get it up. And I was like, whoa, what's that? And they're like, okay. So they put me on a gurney. They're like, you're, I think we're, you're having a stroke. And I was like okay and um it was just sort of panicky like it felt all like a whirlwind where there were all these lifeguards and they they were talking and they got called ahead and she had called 911 and i guess a bunch of people got all of our stuff together and helped her get her stuff together and they put me on a uh a uh little like pickup sand go-kart pickup you know i I was on the back of something and they drove me down to where these firemen EMTs were and uh, near the firehouse on the section of beach that's cordoned off. And uh, they started trying to talk to me and a nurse came up and I heard a helicopter show up and they had decided to take me to uh, Mills Peninsula and Burlingame in the South Bay because they had the best stroke ward they felt. And uh, wow. uh, the next thing I know, uh, Valerie's telling me like, you know, goodbye. And that she's, she's crying. And it was, it broke my heart, but she was like, I just want you to know, I love you. You know, I love you and just know that. And I realized later, she never told me it was going to be okay. And I talked to her later. It's because she wasn't sure she was going to see me again. So I got put on a, a helicopter and this whole time I'm not in pain and everyone's telling me you're going to be okay. And I'm like, I'm going to be okay. I believe it. I don't know what's happening, but in the helicopter, Okay, we got to take a break for just a minute here. Renegade Roundtable will be right back. They loaded me on the helicopter and it took off from the beach. Valerie had to drive, uh, I feel terrible. She had to drive like all the way down to Burlingame on her own, not sure what was going on. (laughs) But while I was in the helicopter, they're putting on the IV. It's kind of like an ambulance and I'm just sitting there. One, I'm like, wow, I'm on a helicopter. This is crazy. And the other part, I'm like, man, there's no way I'm getting out of this without getting stuck with a whole lot of needles. That's also what I thought. I was like, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna turn into a pincushion for this. There's no way out of it. Right. But I thought, okay, seriously, focus. You could, you could talk. You got to talk. And I was like, just say your name. And I was like, okay, 
my, I have, it took so much effort and I was able to finally say, my name is Dominic. I was like, but the helicopter is really loud. Nobody could hear me. It's just me. I have headphones on. I'm like, my name is Dominic. And then I was like, good, good. Okay. Now say your last name. And I was like, I don't remember my last name. I was like, okay, that, that's bad. And I remember in the helicopter going, okay, that's bad. It felt like certain parts of my brain were just shutting down and like I couldn't access certain things and I couldn't remember certain things. All of a sudden it was all fuzzy. I, it felt. Did you try to work your extremities to make sure they were still there or not? Yeah, I did. I kept trying to check stuff and I like, my hand was like, I just kept moving it and I was like, come on, come back. And I was like, okay, I don't remember my name, but if I just say it, I've said it my whole life. If I just say it, I'll get it right. So just say it. And whatever you say, it's going to be right. And I was like, my name is Dominic Davy. And I was like, Davy, there it is. Got it. Okay, I know that's my name. And I was just like, okay, that's definitely not good. So that was my first like, okay. I know the not speaking thing is weird, but that's got to be something weird. I don't know what's happening there. But then when I couldn't remember my name, I was like, okay, there's some problems. And they brought me to the, uh, we landed at Berlin game and they were very, they were really on top of stuff. A doctor came up and was like, we, okay, Mr. Davy, we suspect you are having a stroke. We're going to take you into a CT scan. We're going to take a look and uh, we're going to see, and we're going to go from there. Right. And I was like, yeah, I couldn't say anything. And they brought me into a CT scan. Uh, and then they brought me into the emergency room wherever I was. And after that, and they said, okay, you have a very large, um, uh, uh, clot. Yeah. Clot. See, that's how I was struggling. You have a very large clot. Um, we could operate, but we think that it would be best to do a clot buster, uh, drug, uh, but we have to warn you, sir, that like there is a chance that you could suffer massive cranium, cranial bleeding. And I was like, I remember being lying there going, okay. you know, I couldn't say anything, but I was like, okay. And they're like, so we think that this is best. And I was like, I mean, it can't get worse. Did so, they tell you how far inside the brain it actually was? It was up in my uh, left side. Okay. Here. And it was. But if they actually did try to, if they tried to take it out surgically, would they have had to cut through a whole bunch of brain to get at it? Or was it right near your skull? I think so, yes. So they felt like they could still get it with a clot buster drug. Right. It was all. Given that information, I would have gone for the clot buster. Yeah. Well, I mean, I couldn't really weigh in. It was really up to them. But like 45 minutes from, like, they were fast. Like I was under that CT scan in like 45 minutes and it was only another 15 minutes, like under an hour to get to me start to finish. So it was really amazing because if I'd have been on my own, I don't know what I would have done because I would have been not able to speak to somebody. So picture in your head, you're walking down the street or you're, near a bunch of offices if I was at AT and then I come out and I'm looking at you going uh, 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 and I can't dial and I can't talk 
I mean, it could have been so much worse than it was. So I'm so grateful for Valerie recognizing it for, I ended up getting the call. We all are. She, you know, and the lifeguards. took action and knew, knew to do that right away. I think that's something that's very significant to remember is that sometimes it's hard to accept that a disaster is happening and recognizing how, like we always want to downplay. We always want to say like, it'll be okay. Just take a moment, take a moment. But with a stroke, time's of the essence. So one thing I learned, it's super cheesy. I'm, I'm going to warn everybody right now. It's very cheesy, but they told me, uh, be fast. That an acronym, uh, it's B is for balance. Is the person ha- able are they able to keep themselves balanced? I was starting to struggle to walk. Um, then it's uh, E for eyes. Is their vision blurry? That really didn't happen to me. But I guess I did have a hard time when somebody put their finger up and had me follow it with just my eyes. I was right. turning my head. Right. I was trying to focus on it. So right. that's when I noticed that. I didn't notice it right away. Um, F and now we're in fast f is face uh the 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 drooling and then the sagging of my face uh it wasn't super visual at first but it was becoming clear like i don't think it looked really awful but i think it was subtle but it was happening um because you you lose the muscle control in your face and you don't realize how much it's held up there until it's not holding it up right Um, the next one is arms, A for arms. Uh, you have your the person or yourself hold both arms up. And if you're having a stroke, your right side most likely is going to start having a trouble. It's going to start having trouble. Um, after that, it's S for speech. Uh, uh, someone having a stroke will often slur or struggle mm-hmm. or in my case, outright not be able to speak. And then T is for time to get help. Like if, if all, if any of those things, if enough of those things are happening, it is very likely a stroke, but I had no idea. I, I didn't know what was happening to me at all, but that's what I would definitely recommend. Be fast. So look at the, right. I think that I think what's important about that is say, if it had been me or my own girlfriend or something was going on, the first thought is, Oh well, I'll drive you home. Let's see what happens tomorrow. And, and that's a mistake that was not an option with you. No, luckily she knew right away. But I could see a lot of situations where somebody's like, "Hey, you're okay. Maybe it's sunstroke. Maybe it's something else. Like whatever." But like, it's important to recognize. <laughs> it's important to recognize when you have to call for help. And when it comes to a stroke, part of the reason that I'm able to have this interview, have this conversation, be able to respond and interact as I am now, it's because they got to me so quickly. Um, Otherwise, I wouldn't have been. Um, Somebody knew enough to call the chopper and get you down to where was it? San Mateo or something where that place is? Berlin game. Yeah. Which is about as far south of San Francisco as Stenson Beach is north of San Francisco. Right, but, right. Yeah, so once I was there, they gave me the clot buster, and uh, 
I remember it was really funny because I'm. They didn't inject there. it straight into your head, though, did they? It wasn't in the no, bloodstream. No, or something? it was right in my IV. Uh, and they they did this thing where they walked up, and the nurse that was giving the injection was like, "Okay, five, four, three, two. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, "Why is there a countdown in my head? I'm like, "Why are they counting down? What is am I? Is this scanners? Is my head going to blow up? What's happening?" And then they gave me the injection, and then they kind of like looked at me for a minute, and then they stepped back, and I remember going, "How long?" before like just like that and they were like uh, they all turned and looked at me like shocked and they're like how long before it takes effect obviously pretty quick and i was like hey i can talk and they're like what like they seemed really shocked that i was able to respond and i remember texting uh i could look at my phone and i could open it immediately and i was able to i texted valerie i was i just wrote her i'm okay even though i couldn't even quite talk yet but like as time went on it got easier and by the time she showed up i was able to to respond but did you fear for your life at any point or did you just have to be in the moment and try to process it I didn't, I didn't think I was in any, I, I, it's so weird. I knew that I was, something was wrong and I knew that it was weird, but I didn't, I was not in pain. So I didn't think I was like, I'm not hurting. So it should be okay. Like there was no headache or anything. And I remember that the, the, this, in the helicopter, when I couldn't remember my name, that was where I was like, "Okay, this is more serious than than I am than I think." And then when I was in the hospital after they gave me the clot buster, at one point the nurse gave me a cognitive test, of which the first of many, and I got it right. It's usually about you describe a picture. They show you a picture. You have to describe it. Uh, they show you a number of items. You have to point them out and say what each of those things are. Um, and it's literally like key, feather, chair, hammock, cactus, you know, or car, hammock, cactus. And, uh, I got it and just out of, and she was really happy and just out of my eyesight on the corner of my eye, I saw her make the sign of the cross behind me. And I was like, okay, that seems, she seems happy. And then when she took a break, what happens when you when you have a stroke, you get assigned a nurse because they have to watch you for 24 hours, especially if you have the clot buster because you could have spontaneous cranium bleeding. So they test you every hour or, you know, first every half hour, and then every hour they give you cognitive tests throughout the night. And that was a rough night because they wake you up to do it. Right. But she the first nurse assigned to me needed it was time for her break. So another nurse came in and I was talking to them and they were like, she was like, oh, and I found, she was like, I think she thought that I had had a mini stroke. Um, and oh, not a, a second stroke. one, oh, a little no, stroke no, like, in the hospital. Like you can have a mini stroke with just a partial blockage. And right. because I was talking and she was like, you know, she was talking to me and then she opened up my file and then probably terrible that she did this she was like oh my god you realize how serious this was you almost died 
like this was a full stroke and i was like yes you know and that's when i realized i would have died confused i would have died thinking like what's going on like i had no idea that it was that 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 it was that serious and and like since then i've talked to like neurologists and others who who have told me like you know 10 years ago we didn't have the techniques we have now everything we did for you didn't exist 10 years ago and uh i recovered really quickly even now since then i've been really lucky um but it's been a lot of it's required a lot of patience but luckily like even when i was in the hospital they were asking like okay he's an artist he's a musician is that going to be affected and i remember the doctor going oh no no that's fine that's a whole different part of the brain he'll be able to play music and yeah you told me you could play your bass again within days of getting home yeah it was weird though draw uh that i could do that but then i would struggle to talk if there was like even now I still run into problems if like people are talking really fast or there's a lot of people talking, it wears me out. But back then I would get to the point where I was like, suddenly I couldn't understand what anyone was saying. And it sounded like another language. Right. I wasn't able to process. So what was damaged was my, my communication. Uh, my right side still feels different. Um, it feels it feels like it's weaker, but I took a lot of physical therapy tests and it's right. just as strong as my left side. It's just that it it's it's now there's a new pathway that controls my right side. Right. Um, I, feel, I, I, I struggle with words. The more tired I get, the more I struggle with things. If I go to, I still make mistakes. I make a lot more mistakes than I used to make in terms of like numbers or reading comprehension or writing grammar is worse. And then if I push too far, I get confused uh, and I could get really confused where I don't see or notice things around me and I'm not sure where, what's going on. That's, That's the time to speak up to the rest of the room or the person you're talking to, especially if it's me off on a tangent and uh, slow down. I'm having a moment. Start over. Stop. Yeah. It's it's been getting better, but it's definitely an interesting experience to to go through. And so now it's basically generally I'm OK, but. I notice that when I get tired, I get real tired really fast. Right. And then. I start, for lack of a better term, falling apart. But I've been really lucky because I've been able to play shows with Loud Graves and Tsunami Bomb. I've been able to draw. I'm able to work. It's a little tricky. Some things are a little harder than others, but it's definitely been an experience in patience and in acceptance of a new reality. Like I, I feel like, I think I told you once, I feel like I've gone from being able to juggle a lot of things to basically toss one ball up in the air and catch it. And I'm, I can do one thing at a time and I try to be efficient and I try to have a lot of um, as many uh, checks and balances for my, myself, but I'm very grateful for how much I've come back as it is. Uh, Well, we all are obviously. And I think I'm speaking for everybody out there too. Well, I appreciate it. It, it was, it really was amazing just how supportive 
everybody was and how kind everybody was. Um, but it's definitely been an experience. So I would say, you know, really pay attention to everyone out there. Do, you know, if you see something happening, do not be afraid to pull the alarm because that might, that's the difference between somebody recovering and someone not recovering. Yeah. And then, you know, for the checks, it's like that be fast list is a really good balance. Yeah. uh, Eyes, face, arms, speech, get some help. You know, that's, that's the things to look for. I mean, I mean, the tough one is if you are all alone and know something's wrong and what do you do? I mean, as you know, my mother, who is now 93, had a stroke almost four years ago in February of 2019. And she blacked out, luckily didn't hit her head somewhere that took her out for good. Like what happened, unfortunately, with D.H. Poligro just recently. But um and she doesn't know how long she was out. Was it 48 minutes or 48 hours? She has no idea how long she was out. And the only reason she came to, or the reason she came to, was finally the cat. Little Tish, Tishley Winks, began licking her face. And mm-hmm. she's not a cat to lick faces or nuzzle you like that but she she knew something was wrong and licked mom and licked her and licked her and licked her until she came to and then slowly realized something was really wrong and maybe she even realized oh my god i may have had a stroke because she couldn't stand up all the way or anything and somehow she got herself to the front door and got either in the doorway or right outside and eventually flagged somebody walking by on the sidewalk, a couple, and they called 911 immediately and stayed with her. And yes, it was a stroke. And of course, with ambulances, the reason they drive so fast with the sirens on before they reach their des- the, per- the afflicted person is because the most important thing with ambulances is not how quickly they deliver you to the hospital, but how quickly they get there in the first place to try and figure out what's wrong and supply first aid that may be too late if they cruise along and stop at all the red lights taking you back to the hospital. That's the critical time is right there. And again, they were trying to see what exactly was going on with her head. Um, I think she might have given them her name. I don't know. Who's the president of the United States? And she responds, Trump, boo, hiss. And they got a kick out of that. Then they try, okay, wiggle your left leg. Let's see how much strength you have. And she kicked the guy in the back of the ambulance and insists that if the door hadn't been properly latched, he would have gone out the back door. (laughs) And in her case, they told my aunt to expect, you know, wheelchair, nursing home. She's never going to go home. And then they finally measured her actual physical strength. And she was in the 90s percentile wise for male or female for somebody 89 years old going on 90 and so they decided to try and get her back instead and in her case short-term memory issues and she feels cold still on her left side and always will although she goes for walks and you know is supposed to use a cane but rarely does and uh you know, all the all that mountain climbing, walking so far back and forth to work and growing up a swimmer on Lake Michigan all paid off in the end or we would have lost her. 
and she would be barely there in a nursing home instead of, you know, well, also she's really tenacious. She's like a much older version of Elizabeth Warren, basically right down, mm. right down to the hair. And <laughs> uh, so, um, so she was very tenacious about rehab and I'm going to get this back. I'll show them I'm a tough old bird. And she That's is. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, some of this sounds very, very similar to her. And I haven't talked to her in detail about what all the things that went on in her head or trying to get words out. And she fully saw the same thing you did about knowing what you wanted to say in your head and either can't find the word or can't get the word out of your mouth. Yeah, it's a very bizarre experience to have. I still am not used to it. It just feels so... It's hard to explain. I, I I guess the best thing I can say is what it feels like is, you know, those times you can't think of a word or the days you feel when you just wake up. Um, you're just like, where am I? What's going on? What's, what is somebody saying to me? So it's nothing foreign. It's not things that people can't understand or that people don't experience on their own. It's just that everything I struggled with like that is now so much more of a struggle and uh but i mean yeah it's like you know like i wasn't the best i didn't have the best grammar now i'm really bad you know it's like what you're saying yeah so it's like certain things just aren't quite right but it is a really interesting experience to be brain damaged i mean you know that's kind of a weird thing but like the uh the uh, neurologist was like well you're obviously quite a guy. So, you know, 90% of you is still a lot of you. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess do you feel I'll you're only it. 90% or do you feel like you're higher now? I don't know. I definitely feel affected by right. it. But I, I am grateful for everything that I have. It definitely makes you feel... I I don't I can't imagine somebody who not feeling just gratitude to be to exist to be able to be me and every time I'm able to be I, every time I think of it I'm very glad to be me but you know there's been certain things too with the heart stuff that I've had and like you know little palpitations as the heart heals they closed the pfo they ended up finding that there was right we better rewind and explain that to people real quick too you know, after the, after his second one with Nardwar too, they found a congenital hole in his heart. And in his case, they said, well, this may never cause another stroke or ever trouble you again, so we can leave it alone unless you want to go ahead and have it surgically repaired. And his immediate reply was, fix it now, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And I think it's the same procedure you had. Yeah, I... Um... I guess I should say what ended up being the cause of this whole thing. I, it was determined that uh, I have uh, something that 20% of people have, which is a hole in my heart. Uh, you get that hole when you're a fetus in your mother's womb. It's part of how her blood goes from her body into yours before your heart is pumping your own blood or you've developed your own, completely your own blood. Ah. But as you're born and you grow up, that hole closes. Mine did not, and 20% of people doesn't by itself. What was the size of the hole? 
I never did get a quite measurement, but it's pretty small. It's real. It's real tiny. It's like a, 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 a just a couple of millimeters, but it's enough yeah. for blood clots that go from through my bloodstream and out to my lungs to be crushed by my lungs, which is what everybody is supposed to do. Um, it's enough for that one to get through. So it was only a matter of time. And then added to that, I have one instance of factor five Leiden, which is a mutation that basically I clot at a higher rate than most people. And I've never growing up, I've never been a bleeder. Uh, and you know, looking back that I realized that like, I, you know, I, I bleed, but like it tends to heal pretty quick, scab over. It's like, I stopped bleeding pretty fast. It's always been easy to stop me from bleeding. Now, if I had two, a double instance of it, then I would seriously have a problem. But as one factor, five Leiden, that's not so bad either. It's pretty, you're, you're functional. You just clot at a higher rate. Together, this led to my clot. Eventually, a clot came by my heart, went up the hole, and shot right into my brain and clogged it. And they say it could have happened at any point in my life, but it happened now. But luckily, like I said, that's how it happened. So we've, we, I did just uh, about a month ago have a procedure to close the hole in the heart. Well, so what's the name of the procedure? What's the name of the procedure? It was a PFO, uh, PFO closure. Okay. And for those people who don't know, oh my God, heart surgery. And they think of open heart surgery. Yeah, it wasn't an open heart surgery. cracking your ribs like an egg and ripping in there and cutting stuff open. And that's not what was done here. No, they go through your groin. They go through right. your thigh right by your groin, which is mm-hmm. a weirder. That is weird from another perspective. But yes, they actually go through your veins all the way up. And they insert into your heart and then close, open up the closure, pull it down, it clamps down, and it closes the uh, closes it up. They can and they do it while you're it awake. Close, they suture it closed or they put in some kind of a stent or something. It's like a, like a, an umbrella stent. It kind of covers up right, over this right. opening. And, and uh, the- they can do it while you're awake. But uh, with me, ooh, something, something went out. <laughs> Uh, they can do it what while um, you're you're awake, but with me they had to put it down my throat as well. To uh, they put a uh, transesophageal. Uh, uh, see now I'm struggling with words. I'm struggling with what what it's called, um, and I couldn't. I can't get the word. But anyway, they they put a uh, sonogram kind of thing like behind my heart so they could see what they were doing so since i like jokingly had me going down both ends they they thankfully put me under and uh, i was out right right do you have any idea the diameter of these thingies going around in there because this was kind of done robotically no it was done well it was done by a surgeon who controlled the arm but yeah it it was small enough to go through my veins pretty crazy yeah it's weird to think about yeah, for the record, real quick, so we don't get melodrama on the internet. Yes, I had minor heart surgery too over uh, atrial fibrillation, AFib, which means the heartbeat is irregular. And thankfully, I was not in danger of my heart stopping, so no pacemaker, but going real, real fast. Oh, yeah. 
And the heart surgeon said, oh, yeah, you do. You, you know, the, the, you were, it was especially crazy when you were working out on your Nordic track or whatever and do the other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, well, Guantanamo School of Medicine shows, hour and a half of Nordic track with catching my breath now and again. Um, should I, you know, what should I do with that? Well, you could do it, but it might not be a good idea. <laughs> In other words, you know, I don't want, didn't want to wind up like Jackie Wilson, you know, the great soul singer performer who had a heart attack and a stroke at the same time on stage in New Jersey and spent the last several years of his life comatose before he finally died. You know, something like that can ruin your whole evening. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, again, it, there was two little things up through my crotch and almost like not that much bigger than needles actually, but there was enough in there. Mm -hmm. They could see what they were doing. They could move it around. They uh, basically cauterized or closed up the veins that were, getting in there causing the problems and i haven't had any irregular heartbeats since and even was able to quit all the drugs that were designed to control the rhythm of the heart and things That's so uh yeah again it was not getting cut open i was not in danger unless i was stupid about it and didn't mm. do anything and then you just you never know Sometimes and so, the hardest uh, thing is to admit you need help and now they now they looked and found plaque in me too in the uh, arteries and the big bunch right of, right outside my heart it's some artery they I it's left something or other nicknamed the widow maker by oh. doctors because so many people die right then and there if that thing closes up and so sometimes they'll go in and put in a stent that pushes the whole, whole thing to one side they don't want us to try and cut it out because if any of that plaque gets loose then it's stroke time. So right. they just keep it there and leave it there and stuff. But then you got to go on this other drug for the rest of your life if you have that procedure. And so finally, after resisting all of the, you know, the, the, the uh, Lipitor, which I've had, you know, had personal stories of people having cognitive dysfunction, thinking they had Alzheimer's after they took that shit and stuff. So yeah, I grudgingly said, okay, drug dealer, give me the damn drug instead. And wound up doing Crestor to avoid having the procedure where I'd wind up on something that terrifies me too called Plavix with no option to get off of it, you know, get the cholesterol down in the least brutal way is the idea. Good. Well, and here's, that, here's that's, that's as far as it's gone with that. And it, it's maintenance and it's preventive and... You know, because of this and other things going on, I may or may not get back to doing the kind of live shows I like to do. I don't know yet. But um, so touring is a ways off and I still got COVID paranoia, COVID potato syndrome. So I'm not DJing or doing anything like that. But we shall see. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to do anything that's going to want. It's not worth risking killing myself or really badly injuring myself in a in a stroke that i don't come through as well as right. you did just to go on tour right it's not well, worth it. i mean hopefully we get you get back to a point where you can do the things you want yeah. to do at least. yeah of course of course on that point i think we're gonna have to wait for another time uh, you see we can quickly say you have a you have one podcast that's kind of been mothballed but you're bringing back that's all about horror 
called Monster well, no, Candy. I, I, I sometimes am, uh, I started a podcast called Monster Candy with a bunch of friends and it talks about uh, horror movies. I'm not on it anymore. I, I'm kind of a guest host now. They they kind of have gone on. Uh, Oubliettes on it though. That's wow. it's really cool. So I recommend it. It's super fun. But I'm bringing back the mo- the one that I mothballed that I'm bringing back is a podcast called Three Gigs. Uh, where I sit down with different performers and I ask them the story of their first ever performance, their best performance, and their worst performance. And it ends up being a lot of really great discussions about it. And I really like the show. So I'm excited to have it come back. I'm going to have trouble with that one. You want me on. But the best of all the performances, there's several contenders from several different kinds of performances. Same for worst performance, too. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing. I, things I, went I, wrong I were totally my own fault. I tend to go tell people that what I'm looking for is, you know, you tell the story of the first time you ever performed, but then you, what was... The moment you were like, this is everything I wanted this to be. This is why I do it. And then the show that makes you go, why am I doing this? What have I done? I want to go home. <laughs> we all Oh, have yeah. Oh, so yeah. It's called well, Three Gigs. And there's a bunch of them already up uh, uh, from before. I have a ton of them. They're, they're going to be a bunch of new ones. And uh, it's a really great show. So everyone should take a listen. Maybe one of these days I'll get Jello on it. Right. Well, I think we are running out of time here and must wrap it up for Renegade Roundtable. So uh, at least you will hear me and maybe at some point even see me somewhere down near the River Styx. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for having me on. It has been great hanging out and it's been great chatting with you about everything. Yeah. So yeah. thanks for having Adios, me. Adios, amigos. <laughs>